This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ryan Williams Bullfinch's Mythology, The Age of Fable By Thomas Bullfinch, Chapter 31 Adventures of Aeneas, the Harpies, Dido, Palinurus Adventures of Aeneas We have followed one of the Grecian heroes, Ulysses, in his wanderings on his return home from Troy, and now we propose to share the fortunes of the remnant of the conquered people under their chief Aeneas, in their search for a new home after the ruin of their native city. On that fatal night, when the wooden horse disgorged his contents of armed men, and the capture and conflagration of the city were the result, Aeneas made his escape from the scene of the destruction, with his father and his wife and young son. The father, Anchises, was too old to walk with the speed required, and Aeneas took him upon his shoulders. Thus burdened, leading his son and followed by his wife, he made the best of his way out of the burning city, but in the confusion his wife was swept away and lost. On arriving at the place of rendezvous, numerous fugitives of both sexes were found who put themselves under the guidance of Aeneas. Some months were spent in preparation, and at length they embarked. They first landed on the neighboring shores of Thrace, and were preparing to build a city, but Aeneas was deterred by a prodigy. Preparing to offer sacrifice, he tore some twigs from one of the bushes. To his dismay, the wounded part dropped blood. When he repeated the act, a voice from the ground cried out to him, Spare me, Aeneas. I am your kinsman, Polydor, here murdered with many arrows from which a bush has grown, nourished with my blood. These words recalled to the recollection of Aeneas that Polydor was a young prince of Troy, whom his father had sent with ample treasures to the neighboring land of Thrace, to be there brought up at a distance from the horrors of war. The king to whom he was sent had murdered him and seized his treasures. Aeneas and his companions, considering the land accursed by the stain of such a crime, hastened away. They next landed on the island of Delos, which was once a floating island, till Jupiter fastened it by adamantine chains to the bottom of the sea. Apollo and Diana were born there, and the island was sacred to Apollo. Here Aeneas consulted the oracle of Apollo and received an answer, ambiguous as usual. Seek your ancient mother. There the race of Aeneas shall dwell and reduce all other nations to their sway. The Trojans heard with joy and immediately began to ask one another, Where is the spot intended by the oracle? Anchises remembered that there was a tradition that their forefathers came from Crete, and thither they resolved to steer. They arrived at Crete and began to build their city, but sickness broke out among them, and the fields that they had planted failed to yield a crop. In this gloomy aspect of affairs, Aeneas was warned in a dream to leave the country and seek a western land called Hesperia, whence Dardanus, the true founder of the Trojan race, had originally migrated. To Hesperia, now called Italy, therefore, they directed their future course, and not till after many adventures in the lapse of time sufficient to carry a modern navigator several times around the world did they arrive there. Their first landing was at the island of the Harpies. These were disgusting birds with the heads of maidens, with long claws and faces pale with hunger. They were sent by the gods to torment a certain Phineas, whom Jupiter had deprived of his sight in punishment of his cruelty. 
and whenever a meal was placed before him, the harpies darted down from the air and carried it off. They were driven away from Phineas by the heroes of the Argonautic expedition, and took refuge in the island where Aeneas now found them. When they entered the port, the Trojans saw herds of cattle roaming over the plain. They slew as many as they wished and prepared for a feast, but no sooner had they seated themselves at the table than a horrid clamor was heard in the air, and a flock of these odious harpies came rushing down upon them, seizing in their talons the meat from the ditches and flying away with it. Aeneas and his companions drew their swords and dealt vigorous blows among the monsters, but to no purpose, for they were so nimble it was almost impossible to hit them, and their feathers were just like armor impenetrable to steel. One of them, perched on a neighboring cliff, screamed out, Is it thus, Trojans, you treat us innocent birds, first slaughter our cattle and then make war on ourselves? She then predicted dire sufferings to them in their future course, and having vented her wrath, flew away. The Trojans made haste to leave the country, and next found themselves coasting along the shore of Epirus. Here they landed, and to their astonishment learned that certain Trojan exiles, who had been carried there as prisoners, had become rulers of the country. Andromache, the widow of Hector, became the wife of one of the victorious Grecian chiefs, to whom she bore a son. Her husband dying, she was left regent of the country as guardian of her son, and had married a fellow captive, Helenus, of the royal race of Troy. Helenus and Andromache treated the exiles with the utmost hospitality, and dismissed them loaded with gifts. From hence Aeneas coasted along the shore of Sicily, and passed the country of the Cyclops. Here they were hailed from the shore by a miserable object, whom by his garments, tattered as they were, they perceived to be a Greek. He told them he was one of Ulysses' companions, left behind by that chief in his hurried departure. He related the story of Ulysses' adventure with Polyphemus, and besought them to take him off with them, as he had no means of sustaining his existence where he was but wild berries and roots, and lived in constant fear of the Cyclops. While he spoke, Polyphemus made his appearance, a terrible monster, shapeless, vast, whose only eye had been put out. He walked with cautious steps, feeling his way with a staff down to the seaside, to wash his eye socket in the waves. When he reached the water, he waded out towards them, and his immense height enabled him to advance far into the sea, so that the Trojans, in terror, took to their oars to get out of his way. Hearing the oars, Polyphemus shouted after them, so that the shores resounded, and at the noise the other Cyclops came forth from their caves and woods and lined the shores like a row of lofty pine trees. The Trojans plied their oars and soon left them out of sight. Aeneas had been cautioned by Helenus to avoid the strait guarded by the monsters Scylla and Charybdis. There Ulysses, the reader will remember, had lost six of his men, seized by Scylla, while the navigators were wholly intent upon avoiding Charybdis. Aeneas, following the advice of Helenus, shunned the dangerous pass and coasted along the island of Sicily. Juno, seeing the Trojans speeding their way prosperously towards their destined shore, felt her old grudge against them revive, for she could not forget the slight that Paris had put upon her in awarding the prize of beauty to another. In heavenly minds can such resentment dwell. Accordingly, she hastened to Aeolus, the ruler of the winds, the same who had supplied Ulysses with favoring gales, giving him the contrary ones tied up in a bag. Aeolus obeyed the goddess and sent forth his sons, Boreas, Typhon, and the other winds, to toss the ocean. 
A terrible storm ensued, and the Trojans were driven out of their course towards the coast of Africa. There they were in imminent danger of being wrecked, and were separated, so that Aeneas thought that all were lost except his own. At this crisis, Neptune, hearing the storm raging, and knowing that he had given no orders for one, raised his head above the waves and saw the fleet of Aeneas driving before the gale. Knowing the hostility of Juno, he was at no loss to account for it, but his anger was not the less at this interference in his province. He called the winds and dismissed them with a severe reprimand. He then soothed the waves and brushed away the clouds from before the face of the sun. Some of the ships which had got on the rocks he pried off with his own trident, while Triton and Asenath, putting their shoulders under others, set them afloat again. The Trojans, when the sea became calm, sought the nearest shore, which was the coast of Carthage, where Aeneas was so happy as to find that one by one the ships all arrived safe, though badly shaken. Waller, in his panegyric to Lord Protector, Cromwell, alludes to the stilling of the storm by Neptune. Above the waves, as Neptune showed his face, to chide the winds and save the Trojan race, so has your highness raised above the rest, storms of ambition tossing us repressed. Dido Carthage, where the exiles had now arrived, was a spot on the coast of Africa opposite Sicily, where at that time a Tyrian colony under Dido, their queen, were laying the foundations of a state destined in later ages to be the rival of Rome itself. Dido was the daughter of Belus, king of Tyre, and the sister of Pygmalion, who succeeded his father on the throne. Her husband was Sicaeus, a man of immense wealth, but Pygmalion, who coveted his treasures, caused him to be put to death. Dido, with a numerous body of friends and followers, both men and women, succeeded in effecting their escape from Tyre in several vessels, carrying with them the treasures of Sicaeus. On arriving at the spot which they had selected as the seat of their future home, they asked of the natives only so much land as they could enclose with a bull's hide. When this was readily granted, she caused the hide to be cut into strips, and with them enclosed a spot on which she built a citadel, and called it Bursa, a hide. Around this fort the city of Carthage rose, and soon became a powerful and flourishing place. Such was the state of affairs when Aeneas and his Trojans arrived there. Dido received the illustrious exiles with friendliness and hospitality. Not unacquainted with distress, she said, I have learned to succor the unfortunate. The queen's hospitality displayed itself in festivities at which games of strength and skill were exhibited. The strangers contended for the palm with her own subjects on equal terms, the queen declaring that whether the victor were Trojan or Tyrian, it should make no difference to her. At the feast which followed the games, Aeneas gave at her request a recital of the closing events of Trojan history and his own adventures after the fall of the city. Dido was charmed with his discourse and filled with admiration of his exploits. She conceived an ardent passion for him, and he, for his part, seemed well content to accept the fortunate chance which appeared to offer him at once a happy termination of his wanderings, a home, a kingdom, and a bride. Months rolled away in the enjoyment of pleasant intercourse, and it seemed as if Italy and the empire destined to be founded on its shores were alike forgotten. Seeing which, Jupiter dispatched Mercury with a message to Aeneas recalling him to a sense of his high destiny and commanding him to resume his voyage. Aeneas parted from Dido, 
though she tried every allurement and persuasion to detain him. The blow to her affection and her pride was too much for her to endure, and when she found that he was gone, she mounted a funeral pile, which she had caused to be erected, and having stabbed herself was consumed with the pile. The flames, rising over the city, were seen by the departing Trojans, and, though the cause was unknown, gave to Aeneas some intimation of the fatal event. The following epigram we find in elegant extracts from the Latin. Unhappy, Dido, was thy fate, in first and second married state. One husband caused thy flight by dying, thy death the other caused by flying. Palinurus. After touching at the island of Sicily, where Acestes, a prince of Trojan lineage, bore sway, who gave them a hospitable reception, the Trojans re-embarked and held on their course for Italy. Venus now interceded with Neptune to allow her son at last to attain the wish for goal and find an end to his perils on the deep. Neptune consented, stipulating only for one life as ransom for the rest. The victim was Palinurus, the pilot. As he sat watching the stars with his hand on the helm, Somnus, sent by Neptune, approached in the guise of Phorbus and said, Palinurus, the breeze is fair, the water smooth, and the ship sails steadily on her course. Lie down a while and take needful rest. I will stand at the helm in your place. Palinurus replied, Tell me not of smooth seas or favoring winds. Me, who has seen so much of their treachery, shall I trust Aeneas to the chances of the weather and the winds? And he continued to grasp the helm and to keep his eyes fixed on the stars. But Somnus waved over him a branch moistened with Lethian dew, and his eyes closed in spite of all his efforts. Then Somnus pushed him overboard, and he fell, but keeping his hold upon the helm it came away with him. Neptune was mindful of his promise and kept the ship on her track without helm or pilot, till Aeneas discovered his loss and, sorrowing deeply for his faithful steersman, took charge of the ship himself. There is a beautiful allusion to the story of Palinurus in Scott's Marmion, Introduction to Canto I where the poet, speaking of the recent death of William Pitt, says, Oh, think how, to his latest day, when death just hovering claimed his prey, with Palinur's unaltered mood, firm at his dangerous post he stood, each call for needful rest repelled, with dying hand the rudder held, till in his fall with fateful sway the steerage of the realm gave way. The ships at last reached the shores of Italy, and joyfully did the adventurers leap to land. While his people were employed in making their encampment, Aeneas sought the abode of the Sibyl. It was a cave connected with a temple and a grove, sacred to Apollo and Diana. While Aeneas contemplated the scene, the Sibyl accosted him. She seemed to know his errand, and under the influence of the deity of the place, burst forth in a prophetic strain, giving dark intimations of the labors and perils through which he was destined to make his way to final success. She closed with the encouraging words which have become proverbial. Yield not to disasters, but press onward the more bravely. Aeneas replied that he had prepared himself for whatever might await him. He had but one request to make. Having been directed in a dream to seek the abode of the dead in order to confer with his father Anchises, to receive from him a revelation of his future fortunes, and those of his race, he asked her assistance to enable him to accomplish the task. The Sibyl replied, 
The descent to Avernus is easy. The gate of Pluto stands open night and day. But to retrace one's steps and return to the upper air, that is the toil, that is the difficulty. She instructed him to seek in the forest a tree on which grew a golden branch. This branch was to be plucked off and borne as a gift to Proserpine, and if fate was propitious, it would yield to the hand and quit its parent's trunk, but otherwise no force could rend it away. If torn away, another would succeed. Aeneas followed the directions of the sibyl. His mother, Venus, sent two of her doves to fly before him and show him the way, and by their assistance he found the tree, plucked the branch, and hastened back with it to the sibyl. End of chapter 31